This episode is called You Can't Make It Dark Enough. I asked the author Cliff McNish about how to create great heroes and villains in children's books. I love what he has to say about using sacrifice and desire. Cliff's career began with the Doomspell trilogy, which was an international success, as we'll discuss. His 2006 ghost novel Breathe was voted one of the top 100 adult and children's novels of all time by British librarians. He's learnt plenty about creating great characters over 20 years as a writer. We recorded this conversation in October 2019. Links to the resources we mentioned are listed in the show notes, so look them up if you'd like to find out more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. This evening, I'm with Cliff McNish, who is a writer of all sorts of stories for children of all ages, really, uh, about witches and ghosts and creepy fantasy stories, horror stories, and we'll talk a little bit about those. And today we're talking mostly about character, how you create great characters, great heroes and villains. And this is something that Cliff has become a bit of a go-to expert on. Um, so, hello Cliff, welcome. Hello, hello. Now, some of the books of yours that, that I know are the Doomspell series that I gather were inspired by your daughter. And um, Breathe, which we've just been talking about, which just scares me even thinking about it, uh, because it starts off with a boy with asthma who is then surrounded by ghosts. Um, and the silver sequence you've also done, and you've done some lovely books for younger children as well, haven't you? Like going home recently, I have, yeah, and I really enjoyed writing those. Just calmer, warmer, more sentimental stories, but they're really nice to write as well. So a range, and um, I gather that when the Doomspell came out, it was translated into twenty-six languages. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And was that your first book? It was. That must have been quite exciting. I had no idea uh, it was happening because it happened over about a year. So you don't get told 26 languages, of course. You just get told, oh, we've sold another rights and uh-huh. we've sold another rights. But because I'd never written anything before and I wasn't part of the children's book world or publishing at all, um, I just kind of thought, oh, you know, this is... This is normal. Yeah, <laughs> it was only later yes, on when my enough. publisher said the only other person at Orion who'd ever had that many was Kevin Crosley Holland, I think, for right. The Seeing Stone. 26 is a lot of languages. It yeah. is. It That's is. Very yeah. And I've no, to this day, if you said to me, what was it specifically about that book and that series? I was but, just about to say that. <laughs> right. Okay. The answer is, I don't really know, except maybe partly it was magic and fantasy and witches, and it came right on the back of Harry Potter. Oh, it did, did it? Right. Yeah. So it did. So I think it fed an interest in that area. Yes. Um, and, and also just something about the witch and the darkness of the story. Um, might have made a difference but otherwise I don't really know you know you spend ages I've written loads of books some of which I all of which I've lavished equal attention on I know that feeling yes yeah and, and some of them have sold you know really quite poorly and others sell well and you don't really know what the reason is no, you, you, really you well. end up just quietly guessing uh, and you're probably wrong I remember Barry Cunningham telling me I might have um, told the story before that um, when um, Christopher Little had been sending the, the Harry Potter uh, manuscript around publishers said no because nobody's interested in boarding schools and magic bless them <laughs> and how wrong they were and clearly that 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 yen for magic was was around well, the same thing happened to orion children's books they also rejected harry potter on the same basis yes they didn't think it was original or interesting enough and barry just loved the friendship about it so i guess that's why he went for it and that worked out quite well um 
So, um, the way that I encountered you was actually through Candy Gourlay, who is another contributor to this podcast series, and uh, her wonderful um, blog, Notes from the Slash Pile. And I remember she was talking about a, a blog post that you had done, or an interview that she'd done with you on villains, and that referred back to one on deepening character. Um, and that's apparently one of the most successful uh, posts that they've ever done. I didn't know that. Yes, according to Candy. So I'm interested in talking to you about uh, character today. I'm really pleased that you've come. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so... To start off with, um, do you have any great characters in children's literature that really stand out to you when when you were reading? Mm. Well, it's, it's interesting, actually, because um, I came to reading late. My family, there were no books in my house that mm. I remember. My mum, I remember my mum saying to me when I complained about this at some point, she heard something online and she said, we had books. I said, where were they? Because I don't remember them. She said they were in the bedroom. Me and your dad had them in the bedroom. So I didn't really start reading until a librarian gave me books. And I was, the ones I really remember, I was about 10 years old. Yeah. I must have read before that, but I don't recall. But the first book that he gave me at this school was The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis. Oh, and I was yes. just ready for this. And I just completely fell in love with all of those characters. And of course, at that time, there were so few books written for children relative to now. So, yes. you know, if you read fantasy, you read that. And if you were lucky and somebody was clever around you, they gave you Alan Garner. So yes. you read The Weirdson and Prison Gammon and The Moon of Gomrath and Elidor. They came maybe about a year or two later for me. So they were the sort of ones that I started off with. And I don't really remember much before that, apart from reading comics, you know, Marvel comics and things like this. Well, as far as character goes, I suppose they've got some fantastic characters in there. Oh, God, absolutely. Yeah, they have. <laughs> I read a few. I funny enough, thinking about yes, I've been talking about graphic novels and things recently as well, and I loved Asterix really early on, and Asterix and Obelix and all of those characters were Ver Vercingetorix, um, uh, were very special to me. But I, I remember particularly Mary Lennox from The Secret Garden mm. was. I just just felt that we were best friends she i loved the fact and perhaps we'll talk about this later i love the fact that mm. she was so horrible and unsympathetic to start with she had almost no redeeming features this nasty girl set in this yorkshire countryside and she therefore had a massive journey to go through to become the girl that she was at the end and i just adored going on that journey with her so i i loved her um and she is I, she is actually an amazing character but it's it's a tricky area this I've written books, for instance, Angel, a book I read about a girl, a teenage girl, who is fairly selfish in some ways at the beginning, but only in an ordinary way. She's protecting herself. And so many people wrote to me and said, oh, I don't want to follow this girl because she's too selfish. In right. other words, the whole problem about how do you create a sympathetic, unsympathetic character and keep a reader past page 10? Yes. It's a really difficult thing. And this yeah. is where sometimes, you know, a little bit of technique maybe can come in, like Save the Cat which I know you've mentioned on the previous thing. In other words, even if they're being horrible in all sorts of other ways and they're selfish and we don't really like them, they just do something nice and kind and unexpected when they didn't need to. If they've done one thing, then the reader can cling on to that and, it's, and it's have a, hope. It's, because it's a real yes. issue, actually, if you, yeah. if you do that. I mean, it's interesting that you responded. When did you read 
Secret Garden. When I was nine or ten, okay. by the time I was, I was sort of well into being ten. I remember I was trying to read it in a day. This was my thing because, right. um, yes, I, I was surrounded by books. I was very lucky, so that, but that was my my one. Um, so I came to her when I was about her age, I suppose, mm. and I really identified with her. I'm amazed looking back though, because it's full of Yorkshire dialect, and and how I had the patience to read through that, I I no longer understand. And I bet but, you don't even remember until you look back this time recently. That, that it was even in there. Do you no. remember that? No, no. That, no, it was a real shock to me when I saw Children it. are interesting that way. As adults, when we read dialect, we constantly remember, oh, yes, I had to trudge through this Scottish, whatever, brogue. Yes. But as children, we don't actually remember that we did that constantly. We just assimilated and worked with it. Yes. I don't I know how children do that. I agree with you. And, and loved it. I remember. I do remember Dickon speaking in his own particular yeah. way. Another character who absolutely stayed with me. He's a great, he's just such a lovely character because he's got this heart of warmth of nature and all the rest of it but it's an indication actually because people often have questions about this don't they technique wise they say oh can I have a character that speaks in a Geordie accent you know and you think hmm people say sometimes oh you shouldn't do that you've got to be careful they've got to be able to understand it as long as the English is clear and readable then they will follow and they will happily follow down those routes. So I think a lot of those worries that re- that writers have about using dialect and about using, say, foreigners in books, you know, <laughs> other you know people who are non-English or non-British, they're, they're irrelevant to children. They're more concerning to adults who are worried about the problem. And I think increasingly, as we come to embrace diversity in children's literature more and we encourage empathy more, we should be doing it as much as we can. But I, I do think also that we should be doing it with, with as much authenticity as we can. Of course. So did you say that you, you, you were born in Sunderland? So yeah. you come from there. So if I was just trying to make up a Sunderland accent, I would do it badly and it would probably really annoy you. So I would feel that I would really have to do my research to represent it on the page. Well, I suppose you'd have but to get the rhythm. It's about get the rhythm right, isn't it? Why you're going to do me, your mum? That was the first thing I ever heard when I went up north because I was born there, but I left after nine months, went back there oh, when okay. I was about nine. Yeah. And I met this kid and I was with my own. He said, you then do me, your mum. I had no idea what he was talking about. And eventually I realised, you're going downtown with your mum. Oh, I see. Right. As long as you know the rhythms <laughs> of the language, then you can write it. Yes. And but until then, you can't. Represent really. it. So I think you, you, it, it helps to do it authentically, but, but one should give it a go. I have to write about a South London Sikh character at the moment, and I'm, I'm just about to try and immerse myself into as many South London Sikh people on YouTube right. as I can to work out what he would be saying and how he would be saying it. Um, because, yes, I don't want to, to just make something up off the top of my head. I want to be right. No, you're absolutely right, because, you know, they, everybody calls it tokenism, don't they? And we used to get away with this kind of thing. We would have, you know, we just wanted a variety of characters in our fiction, but now we have to be much more careful that we get it right. I and think it's that's good. true. I think it's making it is. us It makes us, makes us more thorough. Um, yeah, so it is good. So we've come on automatically, actually, to one of the things that um, I wanted us to talk about early on in this conversation, which is how do you create a great character? And and dialogue, the way that they talk, I think, is absolutely one of the elements of it. Um, I talk when I'm teaching about idiolect, and then I kick myself because lots of students say, what do you mean by that? Which is perfectly fair enough. But by that, I do mean that the collection of words phrases rhythms that this person uses the way that they think about the world are they a very visual person are they a very oral person um and with with my big characters i i think about that very deliberately and there are certain phrases that they use and that they repeat um that are part of their 
nature. And I try and make sure that um, among my main characters and ideally among my secondary characters, a reader should know within a line or two who's talking without me having to say. Do you do the same thing? No, I don't do the same thing, but it's a lovely challenge to set yourself. And it's something that comes very strongly from screenwriting as well, Mm. where they can say, if you take away the descriptions around the characters and forget it said David, can you still tell who's speaking? It's a lovely test to do. It actually takes a lot of time to do this because you have to strip everything back and then try it out. But it's a it's a beautiful way of doing it because so many people don't individualise their characters enough. It's a really common mistake. Adults writing for kids, the kids all sound a bit the same. Yes, or the adults in the book can sound the same as each other. Yeah. There's another trick that I tell students, which is for them to have a physical characteristic. It could be just within the scene. like yeah. They're the one leaning against a pillar. They're the one sitting on the stool or something. Or it could be a hat that they always wear or something that get, you refer to regularly so the reader can think, oh, yes, he's that one. Fine. No, and everybody's and been doing this since the beginning of time. Like Dickens <laughs> did this all the time. But I'm thinking of Professor Umbridge from Harry Potter. Mm. She has this one thing where she goes, mm, 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 before she starts to speak, there's this kind of verbal tick that she has. And everybody goes, oh, after a while, it's like, oh, no, you know who it is. Now, if you can get that, if you can get a physical description that actually describes the character before they've said a word, that's really useful. It's yeah. embedded in the pre-dialogue. But in a way, these things are kind of like the trappings of how to individualise characters. The sort of deep core of character, I think, is, is more about what drives the character. And in the end, that helps. That overall differentiates character more strongly than, say, physical or verbal characteristics. So how do you start when you're thinking about characters for your books? Do you start with character or do they grow out of a plot, for example? Well, you know, I was, I was thinking about John Truby recently because you mentioned him in one of your other dialogues. and. Uh, yes. He's, he sidestepped this question or answered it perfectly. He said, there's no difference between character and plot. He, <laughs> says, he said, there isn't any difference. It's ridiculous. He says, the answer to it is, because all that, all that plot is, is the actions that occur because characters make choices. That's all it is. So they're the same thing. And actually, there's a lot of truth in that. I think there's a lot of truth in that. And, and the way I tend to start, or mostly start in my novels, is with concept, with idea. Like a yeah. lot of writers do, even though they, like, they prefer to think that they come from character. Um... But I suppose the one story that I can think of that started absolutely with character was a later one, probably was Going Home, my story about the dogs. You mentioned Nice Happy Story, which I'm really proud of that story. The rescue dogs. Yeah, it's about four dogs stuck in a rescue centre. And I'd had loads of experience of working with dogs. And um, it was my wife who said to me many, many years ago, why don't you write a nice happy story instead of these horrible fantasies for a change? (laughs) That was horrible. And I said, no, 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 other people write those kind of stories. And then she passed away, actually. And then... um, and for about three or four months after that, I'd all, I was commissioned to write a dark ghost story by Orion. And I just got stuck and I, I just didn't want to be in this horrible dark place anymore. I do understand that, yeah. Right, and I didn't, and I sort of eventually came to a complete stop. And then I kind of waited for something else to happen and just sort of walked around a bit. And these little stray ideas about, little happy ideas about kids starting to come in and animals doing silly things. I don't know where they came from. I was batting them away like dragonflies. Really. Mm-hmm. And then I... I suddenly had this idea of these four dogs stuck in a rescue centre. And within two hours, it was all character driven. There was no plot. And in fact, the plot was going to be so simple, it didn't matter. Yes. It's one of the, if you want a secret for creating character driven stories, keep your plot as simple as possible and keep the locations really, really simple or a single location. And it was only as I was starting to conceive it, I suddenly wrote, oh, this is the one that my wife asked me to do. And of course, then it, it gathered its own massive momentum and just wrote itself. But I actually set myself a target in that book. And I realised it was one that I hadn't specifically deliberately set in previous novels, but I'd done a little bit in Breathe as well. And in The Hunting Ground, my other ghost story, mm-hmm. which was to set a single location. 
they don't move out of it. In my in my Doomspell trilogy, it's worlds all over the place, crazy things happening, yeah. snow that can talk and everything like this, crazy Ooh. stuff, mad stuff. But I had these really exotic locations, but here in Going Home, the dogs are stuck in kennels. It's a real kennels. They have bars between the cages. They don't leave the kennels. Even when they go to the toilet, they have to wee on the stone floor. They can't even go out for that. If they're lucky, they get a walk once a day. But I didn't even allow myself the luxury of going on the walk. I just mentioned it. Golly. So I just stayed there. But it forces you to make the characters talk. The only life that the book is going to have at all is the interactions between the characters. You got me wanting to try that now. <laughs> well, you know, it's one of the things. People often, especially if you're lacking in confidence about your character creation, people start to create more exotic plots. Actually, the answer is to hone it down and write a chamber-like piece in terms of plot. It's interesting. It just hit me back to when I was writing Threads, which was my first one, um, and I, I had my my plot there. But often I would start a chapter and I knew what I wanted to happen, but I didn't know how to get to the part where it was going to happen. And I had these four girls and I had lived with them in my head for literally four years before I started writing. Wow, so I knew years. them really well. And I would just get them talking. And one of them used to rub the other three up the wrong way. Well, actually, two of them could rub the other three up the wrong way. And it was great. So they'd start talking and then they'd start arguing about something. And then there'd be some energy in the scene. And then I could do whatever I wanted to do with it. Um, and it was lovely. And it was always coloured by the way that the different way that they all thought about a particular thing. But do you think it, it took you four years to get to that point? That's really interesting you should say that. Yeah, it did. And then, then I had no, to write but, the next but I mean, book in I mean, months. in other words, what I'm not saying, I'm not criticising if it's taken four years <laughs> to get it. Lots of things take four years. But do you think because you'd been thinking about them and they'd been in your head for four years, that eventually the, 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 the voices were fairly authentic and developed by that point? Yes, I do. I wish right. I could do that each time, but yeah. sadly the publishing doesn't work that way. <laughs> they but need your me, books. They want your books. Yeah, I, I am one of those people who would openly admit that it, my stories come to me in plots usually yeah. and I love plotting and then the character is blood out of a stone it's really hard work and I hope by the time someone comes to read the finished article it looks like it was the other way around I hope it looks as if this amazing character was just living with what was inevitably going to happen to them but no it's, I, it's I think, very much retrofitted. But I think that's okay and I think actually it's, it's quite an important sort of bit of confidence to give to sort of newer writers is that actually most people, whether they like to say so or not, are plot driven. They come up with an idea and they start thinking about plot and then they then they develop the characters. And they always think that the characters aren't really working because they never conceived that first. They didn't occur to them first. But actually it works both ways around. One of the things that I noticed that uh, you've written about is the need to avoid cliche when you're developing a character. And do you, do you have particular things in mind that you try and avoid doing when you're creating somebody three-dimensional and authentic? Um, I, I would say probably I don't have anything specific, except there are probably two things that I would think about about that. One of the, the problems is that authors who've written a lot of books get worried about cliché for a different reason than the ones who've just started. Because when you're just starting, all the characters are new and they're all fresh. You know, what happens after you've written 10 books is that you realise you're coming back to the same characters and the same yes. themes all the time. And then you get into this artificial argument with yourself about cliché. But I think the secret to not writing cliched characters is never, first of all, the obvious point, never accepting your first idea as being the one you go with, always questioning that. It's something mm. I work with with kids a lot. But it's also staying in the moments when you're writing. So one of the reasons we get cliched characters is that we rely very heavily on structure and plot and all the rest of it. We've planned out our story and we think we know where our characters are. 
and they perform a particular role in our book. Yes. And we know where they're going to end up in 150 pages time. Okay. To avoid cliche, what you do is you sit in the book, whatever scene you're in, and you let your characters very much go the way they want to in that scene. That doesn't mean that they don't follow your original plan. They can. But if they want to go somewhere else, you follow that path. Because it nearly always leads to what is more original, interesting writing and much more your own writing rather than somebody else's plan or an initial concept, which is quite artificial. I love that. Um, it, it can it can sound very airy fairy. I'm really glad to to have to hear a man describing that because it can sound like a um, it can be put in a way that it just sounds like an airy fairy lady thing of oh my characters just sweep me away. Um, but I have really enjoyed it when a character fights back with me, and it does happen. There was a time when I had this diva character in a book, teenage girl. And for the plot, she had all she had to do for this particular chapter was um, do a cover shoot for Vogue. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that as a teenage girl? Right. But she didn't want to. And this was a surprise to me. Um, I just couldn't write it in a way where she was happy. And in the end, I had to rewrite it that she wasn't happy because she I'd written her. I mean, I realise now I'd written her with a fundamental lack of self-confidence. And this was just bringing that to the surface. And so in, in in it, she decides that she really can't do it and she lets the people down. And that was a far more interesting route to go down, actually, than the first one. But it was fun because, yeah, she really felt like she was alive. Also because you're suddenly, it's alive under your fingers now. Yes. It's new. You haven't planned this. Yes. And that's always more exciting to be in that. Now, that doesn't mean you don't lead to dead end and corners, but that happens anyway when you plan. It's true. It happens just as much as when you plan in great detail in 22 steps or whatever you follow. You'll hit loads of dead end corners. You might as well enjoy yourself and let your character speak to you. But you're right, it can sound airy-fairy, but except as experienced writers, we know it's not. In fact, over-planning tends to lead to less spontaneity yeah. and less growth in characterization. I've really realised that recently with, you know, have you heard of the artist Way, Julia Cameron? I have not. <clears throat> it's, um, it's a really powerful text about how to be more spontaneous in your writing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she recommends, and that quite a lot of writers do, and I've found it unbelievably liberating, is you just have a morning pages, you, you write three pages about anything. You can start anywhere and you have no destination in mind. Classic free writing kind of thing. Okay. Quantity, not quality. But here's what happens. Usually after about a page, page and a half of nothing much going on, you're mm -hmm. just writing a load of nonsense really, mm -hmm. it starts to form a shape. If you're a writer, it starts to become a story. But the point is, you would never have got to that point unless you started from nothing. Yes. And, and you start writing stories that you would never have even conceived and characters... And they're actually deep at the heart of you because they're sort of welling up inside from some quiet place that you didn't even know existed. Whereas when you plot traditionally, it's a much more linear structure. So I would really recommend that people sit in these places, and especially if they struggled with cliche, they struggle with writing plots that they think are original. Yeah. Allow yourself to sit with these things and wait for your thoughts to percolate through and just go wherever they take you. It doesn't matter if they take you in some strange place. It's going to tell you something. That sounds lovely. And as well, you're not facing an empty page anymore, which is such a crucial aspect of writing, I find. It is terrifying to sort of see it at the beginning of the day, be it on a screen or in a book. It is for new writers. Oh, it still is for me. I gather it's not for you. Well, though. only because I've really found this really liberating. And yeah. it's the, 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 this, this whole technique of just starting nowhere, heading nowhere, but just the words sort of percolating through and it doesn't really matter. You're not invested in the results. It does lead to something interesting. And that tends to then generate a story that you're really invested in. At the end of it, half an hour, an hour, two hours later, you've got something really that you would never possibly have written. So that's I know something... many writers feel 
like that, especially at the beginning. Oh, where am I going to go? So it's something you can perhaps borrow for a bigger story that you're writing. So you, you can have the, the main characters there and the main plot there, perhaps. And you then this, this can be something that takes it in a new direction. I, I found it not doing that. I found it generating totally different characters mm-hmm. and stories than I would ever have conceived. So writing more adult stories instead of children's stories. It's interesting that that's happened. Yes. But I think mentally I would have bashed that idea away if it had occurred to me as a thought. I thought, yeah, well, my profession is writing children's books, so I won't spend any time on that. But I think that happens with children's writing as well. And if you tend to create the same kind of characters, just stop that. And one of the simple techniques I do with kids is you take whatever your character is now, whoever they are. You know, they're a boy who's horrible to his sister. You literally reverse it. Yes, that's a real screenwriting technique. But it's incredibly effective. And it, yeah. it doesn't just change that character. It changes the whole plot. And it's just, it's just such a simple device and it works. So when writers are really struggling with cliche characters, reverse them. Or do the opposite of what you would like to do. Brilliant. I like that idea. I also quite like working out what would make them cry at a certain point. Because I often think, oh, this character just doesn't cry. And then if I work out what would really, really upset them, then I discover some completely new aspect of that character that I didn't know about. So that's another useful one for me for sort of pushing me forwards. Also, Scott Card says something really interesting about crying. He's the writer of Ender's Game. Yeah. Brilliant book. And I'm just trying to remember exactly what he said. He says something like... Uh, if your character uh, has a reason to cry but doesn't, the reader will weep for them. Oh, that's nice. It's so powerful. And so <laughs> yes. I'm thinking of someone like Tracy Beaker, where she's crying all the time because her mum's never there and things are going wrong. But she never says she's crying. She's, she's just got hate for you. Terrible hate for you for this morning. <laughs> it's just yeah. been really bad this last month, but the reader gets it. Yeah. So actually, it's a lovely thing to hold back on tears or to misexplain tears. My characters do that a lot. And I'm really praying that my readers understand what's going on behind the scenes. I enjoy that. I like that. Um, Another thing that you've spoken about is self-doubt, is to give your character self-doubt. I think that's an interesting one. Well, absolutely, because in real life we're full of self-doubt. And every child is completely full of self-doubt all the time. Kids tend to be slightly less confident overall than adults Mm. because they've got less experience of life and they're constantly worried about their friendships and all the rest of it. So their lives are riddled by self-doubt. And in fact, adult lives are as well. So if you create heroes and heroines who are like not doubting, in fact, it's nearly always the villains that don't doubt themselves, isn't it? Who don't doubt themselves. Who don't doubt themselves. Oh, yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely, yeah, the villains know exactly It's the Draco Malfoys. They don't doubt themselves. You know, they're vicious and horrible and condescending, but they don't doubt their conduct for a minute. Real characters always doubt themselves, especially when they're having an impact on other characters. We love to see this because it's part of the hero's journey, really, in this sense, that the hero or the heroine always reflects on what they're doing and worries about affecting other people. And that's only self-doubt that makes you do it. Yeah, I like that. And it's a moment for the reader to enter their head a little bit and for for the writer to explore in a bit more depth what they're going through. So, yeah, I like the self-doubt one. And courage under pressure is another one that you talk about. Well, in the end, what what are the stories that people love? They're about characters that they can root for, that they can really fall in love with and care about. And that, to get that, you need to put a character in as much difficulty as possible. Now, that doesn't mean it necessarily has to be Harry Potter facing the Dark Lord Voldemort. It doesn't have to be that. Mm. It just depends on context. So for Tracy Beaker, in the story of Tracy Beaker, one of the most popular books ever in British libraries, it's a bitting that her mum's never going to come for her. This, this mother that has never visited her. And she's made all these allowances for she's in Hollywood preparing a bedroom for her and all the rest yes. of it. Just that. That, that for her acceptance. is this enormous thing. Or in something like, I don't know, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, it's still, which is about a, a quadriplegic. Yes. 
The ability to just open his eyes enough to be able to go yes or no by blinking. That, in other words, but it has to be a huge, insuperable thing. Apparently for the character, it's an enormous burden. And as we put those level of problems and pressures on characters, it's actually difficult for most readers to respond. It really is. I remember one of my favourite books when I was very little, 12, was I Am David, which oh, is... Oh, God, I love that book. And Home. So Oh, my God. And yeah. I assumed that it was based on the end of the Second World War, but it's actually later. It's kind of the 50s, isn't it? And the camps that had been set up in um Soviet Union, I suppose, um, and escaping from one of those. But my goodness, what he he has to mm. cope with the the deepest darkness of the human soul and having never been shown any kindness and and having absolutely no outside resources to draw on at all. Well, he has a compass, doesn't he? Yeah. He loses at some stage. Um, and what he has to face and the courage that he has to show, it's as deep as it can possibly be. And I remember as a child, not exactly identifying with it, but just wanting to be with him, wanting to see him succeed through all of that and being so impressed by what Anne Home is prepared to put him through. And I think another writer who does that for me now is Catherine Mundell and the books that she writes. I remember reading The Explorer and this is a book that I I talk to students about. Um, There's, there are various points, they're they're abandoned um, in the Amazonian jungle and she doesn't give them an easy life. You know, if they get bitten by something, it nearly kills them. If they, <laughs> you know, if they have to struggle to get out, yeah. the grown-ups are not going to rescue them. They're absolutely not going to help them. And um, and it makes the book so much stronger because when they do ultimately work out what they're going to do and they, they do face the genuine fears that they have, um, you feel like you've been through a much deeper... Well, exactly. Experience. And the, I mean, the fact that you're quoting these examples, these are the loved examples in children's fiction. Harry Potter, think of all the problems right at the beginning of the book that J.K. Rowling gives Harry Potter. You know, he's got disfiguring scars, mum and dad are dead. He's in with the Dursleys, are horrible to him. And by the way, the Dark Lord Voldemort's trying to kill him. Pretty serious problems to have. And then it just builds up and escalates from that point. Yes. I think there's a really important point here for a lot of children's writers, because I've noticed it when I've done my own workshops on this. Mm. A lot of them live in the shallows of creating character because they're afraid of putting too many burdens on their characters, especially if they're writing for early readers or children's picture books. They say, oh, and I can't do this. to I can't make it too bad. I even hear this for teenage writers. Oh, my goodness. You it's can't so make common. It... <laughs> you can't make it dark enough. No, exactly. My favourite uh, pitch book to talk about is I Want My Hat Back. Yeah. And and my favourite part of it, I, mean, I, I was talking about pitch books with the students this week, is, is it's on the page turn. So the, the darkness remind happens me, on me. the page turn. Well, massive spoiler alert. This is terrible. But um, the, the bear, the lovely, lovely, yes, gentle bear. bear who's been looking for his hat. <laughs> so polite, deeply polite. That is his, his, you know, his great characteristic. He's, oh, thank you anyway. Um, he's just realised what happened to his hat. He just looks at the viewer. And he, 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 and looks. he looks at the rabbit that, that is wearing the hat. And, and then they look at each other. And there's no words on that page. And then on, on the page turn, so you get bear rabbit, page turn, yeah. just bear. Yeah. And a lot of crushed grass. And that is one of the darkest books I know, you know. Um, well, now, one of those books are dark. The other, the other one, the one about this, the little fish that takes the hat. Yes, same. Same author. Right, it's the same author. Yes. That one. Okay, people say children's books, pull it up. That is about a little goldfish that wants this hat. 
He says, oh, nobody will know if I take this hat. Yep. Nobody will tell me I can escape with this. He goes into the rushes. He's being followed. And at the end, his punishment for stealing a hat is to be killed. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it couldn't be darker as or more unfair. As it was for the rabbit. If you choose to interpret the grass and the future, <laughs> the following page, the way that you inevitably have to, the rabbit kind of gets it as but well. But it also but shows <laughs> you that children get it as well. In other words, a lot of people would genuinely say to you, though, that shouldn't be shown, that shouldn't be allowed for children because we're going to frighten them. It doesn't. They recognise from a very early age the difference between fantasy and reality. They know it's a story. But it's a bit like telling a joke, I think, doing it in the picture book level, is the child has to bring their own understanding to it to get the full inference. And, And if they do that, then it's right there in front of them. And if they don't, then it can be a very gentle Thing. And I think that's what's really clever about those books. It's not completely in your face, but it is there. And um, yeah, just as I enjoy those kind of jokes. Um, but just show you, some of the darkest books. books in children's fiction are picture books. Oh, completely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and are. as we've both found with, with doing workshops in schools for children as writers, we can go quite dark, but they can instantly go way, way darker than we would probably yeah. think we'd be allowed to get away with by a publisher. But that's where childish imaginations go. Yeah, because they don't edit. They don't edit themselves in the way that adults quite often start to do. But that's what they're curious about, is just, just how dark can the world actually be? Um, I'm fascinated by that. So we, we've talked about um, courage under pressure, and we've talked about piling on the obstacles. My, my favourite way of describing it is just put them up a tree and throw rocks at them, which I hate in principle but I love doing in practice to my characters. And I'll often come in from a day's writing saying, you never believe what I put them through today. No, you have to do it. And it doesn't matter if actually when you write the book that you may pull the punches on some of them. You may not go down that route, but you have to think it through to the nth level. So you get to know One simple technique that I would give to people is give your character a big enough problem to start with. I mean, a really massive problem. You know, so many adults, when they write children's books, start off with something fairly small and it's really hard to interest the reader. So start with something really big. I mean, I was just, what's the one I was thinking about the other day again? Right, this is the first line of a novel. Where's Papa going with that axe? Oh, yes! Said Fern to her mother. What book is that? Do you know it? Uh, is that Charlotte's Web? Charlotte's Web by E.B. White. A love book, okay? What's happening at the beginning? This little runt of a pig is sitting in a dark barn about to get his head chopped off by Fern's dad. You are so right. You can't get a bigger problem than this. And it is one of my favourite first lines. I right, think. and it's a great first line. And most novels that really grip people, they start with a really big problem. There's a million ways to start novels, of course. You don't have to start this way. But the quickest way to get sympathy for most readers and get them gripped is to do this. My technique is this. You'll know it's a big enough problem because it will give you at least three other major problems in your life. And if it doesn't, it's not big enough. So what that does when you start to think about those other problems is it gives you the ability to realise what else is happening in the character's life. It starts to populate it with other characters. And you start to get a feel for that character as well. I wish we had had this conversation 10 years ago when I was writing Threads. Because <laughs> my first seven novels I really struggled with how to kick them off. And and often the reviews would say, you know, it was great, but it didn't really get going until chapter three. And I was right. putting my hand up going, I completely agree with you. I really struggled. And um, I didn't do that. And it would have helped me a lot if I had. Yes, I saved my problems till later. I, I think for me, the biggest single thing that with characterisation, if you were to ask me what's the most important thing to do to create great characters is to make sure that they have really strong desire lines, by which I mean they want something desperately. Yes. This is something I learned from Truby, which I know is what something that he said, you know, we, we only respond to characters that really want something. I do bear that in mind a lot as I'm writing, and I often find I'm writing away and I'm not quite happy with it, and I'm thinking, well, what is their desire? Because I need to know at this yeah. stage. 
And what comes up is something quite minor. And I'm very involved with the plot. And I know it's going to go somewhere really interesting. But right now, they don't really need anything. And then I know I'm in a mess and I need to fix that because that is a genuine problem. The the reason you know it's so powerful and so important is that whenever you respond really deeply to character, whether you like them or not, you can always say instantly what they want. And another great example is Twilight, Stephanie Meyer. Yeah. You know, the Edward character. What did he want all the way through? Bella's blood, the taste of it, it's driving him insane. It's driving him obsessively crazy. And at the end, Stephanie Meyer goes, right, here it is. She's been poisoned. He has a choice. He has to suck the blood out. He can just drink this blood down. It won't kill him. Or he can just suck it out and spit it out. It's this amazingly graphic physical scene, but he has the choice to give up what he wants more than anything else to do the right thing. And that's how you create a great hero here. And by doing that, you, but you have to set up the desire line. Yes. If you don't set up the desire line, they're not giving up anything. That's why it's such an important step. You are saving the cat in a major way at that stage, you aren't you, to quote Blake Snyder. Um, I agree with you. I'm, I'm thinking back. I think I, I have managed to do that at crucial stages with my characters, but not consciously. It's just taken 10 drafts to get there. Um, yeah, yeah, doing it the slow way. Hey, same here. But you are right. It's When they do that, then I know that, yes, I'm onto a good thing. And, and that often friendship is at the core of the children's books that we write and how, how that plays out, how... Somebody gives up something that you thought was going to be their absolute um, core motivation because actually the friendship has become more important. Mm. Really but when people point. say, if I'm planning, what shall I be thinking about? To me, it's A, giving them big enough problems and mm. keeping them escalating. But secondly, most importantly, more than anything else by far, give them a really strong, clear desire line that the reader can understand, something that they desperately want, and then find a way that you're going to work with that. If you're going to create them into a hero or a heroine, you've got to twist that round. I do agree. And when I talk about pacing, I say that that's the thing that people should look back for over their book more than anything is, is it clear from page to page whether that's happened? And if you've got really uh, distracted by your world building, by your scene setting, important by your research, by your complicated plotting, by your backstory, and if you're focusing on that and the desire line has been lost then you've got to work at putting it back in there because that's what the reader will be actually conscious of and it might actually vary from page to page and there might be sub things actually sub sub emotions which you want to be pulling through but they've got to sing off the page in the final draft otherwise uh, the reader's not going to be engaged which can be annoying for us because you know we've got a fantastic plot point going on that can be what we're really excited about as no, writers but what, what you're actually saying is really true because what readers respond to isn't plot you yeah. ask people to summarize Book three of the Harry Potter series. There can there's some time travel element. There's a dragon in it or something. But they remember the characters. Yeah. That's what they respond to. And that's why you must always keep that to the forefront. It's never plot. People yes. hardly ever remember detailed plots. Exactly. And that's why I wanted to, this um, conversation to be about character. Because it took me a long time to learn that even if it's not what comes to you first, as it isn't usually for me, it is what stays with the reader. But you take it to another level, of course. And you're really good with villains. Um, and we were talking about this a bit earlier, and I was saying the kind of books that I've written on the whole um, have have been clean teen books mostly with fairly sort of creative storylines about creative young people, and they haven't needed Voldemort type or Miss Trunchbull type Mm. villains to drive the story. Um, But I've enjoyed it when I've had someone who seemed like a a kindly grown-up who's really going to help the hero or heroine, who subsequently, you gradually discover it's actually has this very malign intentions. Mm. Um, So that's the way that I've gone into it. 
Um, but I'm interested in a lot of the things that you have to say about creating those really big villains, though. Um, so what would your suggestions be there? Well, I think the first thing I would say is all villains are the same, whether they're in some big, big, dark fantasy. They're always, they're always trying to do the same thing. And in fact, the importance of villains, I quite often talk to people and they just don't get it. They don't understand how important these external villains are in stories. That doesn't mean you always have to have them. Mm. But usually you want them for various reasons. And try to remember, you know, so you mentioned Matilda. Okay, Miss Tr- imagine Matilda without Miss Trunchbull. There is no story. Obviously, Harry Potter without Voldemort. How about Jaws without the shark? Yes, I'd, I'd talk again about happiness rights white, which really annoyed <laughs> me when I was told. I thought it's a really trite phrase, but this idea that um, if everything's going fine for everybody, there isn't really a story. Well, there there. isn't a story at all. No, there isn't a story at all. And there needs to be some kind of opposition. Now, you can create an internal opposition. There are villains inside us. That's a separate subject we can come on to if you want to. Mm. The villain inside. Harry Potter has this temper and he has a bit of Voldemort in him and he has parcel tongue. And who at last had that? You know, she's careful to create the internal villain. And just like Edward in Twilight, Mm. he's beset by this vampiric nature that he has. That's the internal monster inside him. And he's having to fight it all the way through. That feels very real. We love to see our heroes and heroines with their own little villain inside them trying to punch their way out. So you can't underestimate that. But the external ones are really interesting. Because what happens... I mean, there are, what's interesting is to ask the question, why do we need them? And the, I think the first one is, is that in real life, we're surrounded by opposition characters all the time. There are people who are stymieing us or limiting what we can do. And sometimes there are real enemies who are out to get us as well. And kids, of course face those even more than adults because they're constantly being marshaled and corralled by adults about what they can eat, where they can go, where they have to be. Their world is full of minor opposition characters. So for them, the world of of the overcoming the villain character is a real one that they're sort of facing in some minor way every day. So it feels like real life. Without them, that's why nothing feels real because they exist. Mm. Also, kids just as much as adults love to explore that dark psychology of the villain. You know, we love to... Who doesn't like to find a character that they can actually loathe and and they're allowed, they're given permission to loathe? Most people love those kind of stories and adults like it just as much as kids do as well. You know, Stephen, people like Stephen King have made a whole career based on this. I do find that as a reader, it gets me turning the pages because I want to know what's going to happen, who's going to yeah. win in this, and it really, really matters. And sometimes so. you might turn it round. So like Mrs. Coulter saying The Dark Materials, this horrible woman who tears the souls out of children and loves every single second of it, laughing into the wind. She turns out in the third book to be loving mother who just likes motherhood. So you can use that to turn the villains round if you want to. Mm. But if you don't give the reader that, something to really hold on to, then, then they're often, they often feel that things are empty or they're missing something, it lacks substance in the story. I think the main thing is, it comes down to this, apart from the ones I already said, is that when children are reading books, they need reasons to root for the heroes and heroines. Yes. They do. And the easiest device <laughs> for that is to give them somebody who's the opposite to them. So all the time when you see Draco Malfoy, right, being horrible and snide and condescending and superior and lying and breaking his promises... Harry Potter is almost invariably in his scenes doing exactly the opposite. They're lovely mirrors to reflect against us. And it's the same with Miss Trunchbull. It just reminds us how lovely Miss Honey is and Matilda is. But they're there for that reason. But without those opposition characters, you don't get the contrast. In other words, the heroes and heroines don't shine out without them. Yes, I suppose when I was writing my gentler books it was the hero's own lack of self-confidence to me that was that kind of monster yeah. that's what they unknowingly had to fight to get to where they wanted to go and being constantly put down and ignored and suffering all these minor slights from different people who weren't major villains um 
that that those were the sort of the obstacles they had to realize at some yeah, stage they had to find their inner confidence um so i haven't had to create yet one of these super villains but i'm interested that you you did this lovely blog post about what they should have um and i, I seem to remember lack of sense of humor was was one suggestion which i thought was yeah or, a good or one. that or they're so sarcastic at other people's expense one of the others yeah. And, and you also talked about desirous of harm, which actually really took me back because it seems really obvious for it's a villain, one, yeah. but it was not obvious to me. It doesn't come naturally to me to write a character who actively wants other people to suffer. But it, it, and it's the number one thing. When people say, I've got five minutes to create a character because kids never have more than five minutes to create a character. Yeah. Number one thing is make them cause pain or suffering to somebody who's either innocent or who can't defend themselves or the reader already likes in the story. I mean, so at the beginning of Harry Potter, first scene we have, McGonagall's talking to D- Dumbledore and they're talking about Harry Potter and we hear, yeah, he's killed Harry Potter's parents. Also, he's tried to kill baby Harry while he was in his crib. He instantly achieves ultimate villain status from which it's going to be very hard to emerge. It works instantly to create villains because he's taken on baby Harry Potter. Stephen's, Stephen King talks about this and he says it's the quickest way by far to get us disliking a character really intensely. And he does it, say, I was reading recently, in the Deadpool. Mm-hmm. There's a politician in the Deadpool. At the beginning of the story, he's just a minor politician. He's going around canvassing around a house. What he does, there's nobody there. But there's a dog outside, this little little buggy dog. Because he can, and because he doesn't care, and it's something he can do, he just kills it. So it's the opposite of save the cat. Yes, kill, kill the, the dog. Cat. Kill the dog. <laughs> kill the dog. There we go, we He does it, it for no reason. <laughs> And he instantly achieves ah, his villain But you want to read on, don't you? Because you want to see what happens. You, and you want to see him get his comeuppance. Yes. Completely. So there you are, page time. But, but to, to, to talk to about a more realistic, say, villain, say it's Tracy Beak is a great example of this, because mm. do you remember the little girl who's her nemesis, who's our opposition character for Tracy Beaker in the story Tracy Beaker? It's a girl called Justine Littlewood. Mm. And she's always telling on her when she wets the bed and moaning about her friends and being horrible to say, your mum's not going to come today either. She never comes, does she? And she's a real opposition character for Tracy, and we really dislike Justine. But what she does at the end, because this is a more realistic story, is we find out that she's just waiting for her dad to turn up. Yes. Right. It's often the way, isn't it? They're, they have very, often the way. very believable psychology. Yeah. So you don't have to create Voldemort. In other words, the bitterness and the darkness comes from their own experience. And in the end, you can reflect that back. And you get a really deeper story that way. Yes. But again, she, even even Jacqueline Wilson, who doesn't trade in opposition in Voldemort-type characters, she nearly always creates one, yes. even if they turn out not to be the opposition character. I'm reading a book at the moment called The Dutch House by Anne Patchett, which is an adult book that came out this year, and I'm reading it with my book club. And it has one of the most fantastic, wicked stepmother characters of literature. She's wonderful. Wow. It's like she's straight out of Cinderella and just put into <laughs> 20th century America. Um, and she's hideous. And I've just reached the scene where the children's father has died. She's the second wife. And she is furious, absolutely furious, because she catches the children and the servants who have brought them up, um, who they adore, all four of them in the kitchen, sobbing on each other's shoulders because you know, this man has died. And they haven't thought to tell her. Um, and as far as she's concerned, it's all about her. And she just sees it as a personal slight from which she will never recover that their first thought was to grieve rather than to explain to her what was going on. Mm. And she punishes them so darkly. And golly, you're really involved in that story. You really want to know what happens. Do you um, think they deserve the punishment? God, no. 
absolutely right. not. Right. Nobody does. No. no. But those are the interesting areas, especially for adult fiction. It's like sometimes, you know, somebody can be darkly punished. And if you can really heighten it, you say, do they deserve this punishment? You ask the question of the reader morally. You ask moral questions about this. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that they deserve it, but I can absolutely see how a real human being would feel the way she mm. felt. Yeah. Because it, if, yeah, if she does believe it's all about her, then she is genuinely slighted. And um, yeah, she acts with perfect logic all the way through. Yeah. It's just based on this very... But this whole thing about you know make, causing pain and suffering is so easy to do and it's so primal and so basic, it always works. But the other obvious thing, people often don't make the opposition character strong enough. So Voldemort... Mm. The, the reason Harry Potter and Voldemort works is Harry Potter's 11-year-old schoolboy. He doesn't know anything about his magic and he can't defend himself. He doesn't know anything. Facing the Dark Lord Voldemort, who even Dumbledore's terrified of. It's the power differential between them. Well, that's what I like about President Snow and Katniss Everdeen. Yeah, same thing. That was one of my favourite books the year it came it's great out. Book. I always say the children didn't get fed the week that I was reading that book. You know, I didn't get to sleep <laughs> properly. Um, I, and I don't like violence and it's a very violent book but it, it was is. so thrillingly told yeah. and I don't I mean I love the films but they could never really capture no, the way that good. she was spied on the way she wasn't ever sure who she could trust and who was listening in and what what she could think and what she could say and and the fact that President Snow might know everything about her and, and yes and I love these little details like the white roses and that that he's associated with things that could be lovely. I think that's another trick that one can do with villains, isn't it? Um, mm. the, the scent of roses. What's nicer than that? Well, actually, it's what no, everyone yeah, in that world absolutely. In other with words, the, 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 the evil character always presents the hero or heroine with a gift that they that seems really nice. Look at the white witch in Narnia. Yes. Come yes. on, Edmund. Have some Edmund. Have some of this Turkish delight. It's addicting him. Okay, but you present, the, and of course, that's somehow more insidious than yes. being directly nasty. So that's why you're right. You're absolutely right. Be more underhand. Be more. We we tend to like our villains when they don't state that they're villains. Um, and I know that you think about story often in terms of archetypes, and one of them is overcoming the monster. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about that and how that fits in with the way that you write stories. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, originally, I, I get the term overcoming the monster comes from a book by Christopher Booker called mm -hmm. The Seven Basic Plots, this huge tome. Have you ever heard of it? Yes. Right. But I haven't oh read it. Oh, my God, I'm mighty. It, it takes forever to read. But he has the idea that there are only seven plots that are just told and retold over mm -hmm. and over again. So, and one of them is he starts off overcoming the monster. And it's a really, and sometimes that can be a real monster, Medusa. Godzilla, Grendel, whatever you like. There's millions of real monsters out there. But also, it's usually a human being. And this human being is doing bad things. They need to be stopped in some way. And a hero or heroine is chosen to overcome them. Usually reluctantly at first, it's almost invariably the same story then. There's a kind of moment of hesitation and they jump in. And then against all trials and tribulations, then out of the jaws of defeat, they snatch victory. The monster's eliminated or destroyed or put down. What is restored, the hero or heroine normally receive a prize, which is normally, in fairy tale, it's like the keys of the kingdom or the princess. Yes. You get to marry the princess. In Harry Potter's case, he gets to keep his magic over the summer holidays. J.K. Rowling tells us, yeah, he's going to have fun. <laughs> yes. So that's the very thing at the beginning. He was scared of the Dursleys, what they're going to do to him. He's not scared anymore. That's true. So he gets that. And I think on that note, we'll need to end. Thank you so much, Cliff. We've, just, we've discussed so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. So that's been great. You. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Pre-Published. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love suggestions for future themes and guests too. 
You can also join us on Twitter at prepubpodcast and find me at my website, which is sophiabennett.com. <laughs>